Hi, Andy. Hi, Victoria. I am very excited about our next guests, Justin and Erica Sonnenberg. Justin's been a frequent speaker at our nutrition conferences over the years, and they study microbiome. Especially the gut microbiome, and I think our new way of thinking about it is one of the real revolutions in medical thought and opens up great frontiers for new kinds of treatments. Well, let's get them on. All right. Today, I am delighted to introduce our guests, doctors Erica and Justin Sonnenberg. Erica Sonnenberg is a senior research scientist in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at Stanford University School of Medicine. Justin Sonnenberg is an associate professor in the same department at Stanford, and he's the recipient of the NIH Director's New Innovator Award and Pioneer Award. Together, Justin and Erica are co-authors of the book, The Good Gut, Taking Control of Your Weight, Your Mood, and Your Long-Term Health. Their lab focuses on the microbiome, and they've published research in Nature, Science, and Cell. Their objective is to devise innovative strategies to prevent and treat disease using the gut microbiome. Erica, Justin, we're delighted to have you on our show. And clearly, the microbiome has become an extraordinarily important part of medicine and healthcare. Absolutely. We're delighted to be here and uh, look forward to um, unpacking this complicated, fast-moving field with both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Let's start with you, Andy. What is the microbiome? Well, it is the total population of microorganisms that live in us and on us. So primarily bacteria, but also fungi, viruses. And uh, these are in the human gastrointestinal tract, the gut microbiome, in the female reproductive tract, and on the skin. So much more than just the gut. Definitely. And in terms of uh, total organismic load, uh, people say that we are hybrid organisms of human cells, human DNA, and microbial DNA. And actually, there's more microbial DNA in us than there is human. So that is just such a bizarre thing to think about. And Justin and Erica, on your website, you write, humans are composite organisms consisting of microbial and human parts. Now, very few of us think of ourselves in this way. Can you say more about it? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, with the past, 15 years of research has really taught us is that humans are in fact a walking ecosystem. So, you know, we think of ourselves as a collection of human cells and made up of organs like our heart, our liver, our lungs, but we actually have this other aspect of our biology, which is our microbiome, our associated bacteria. And in many ways, these organisms form what is often called a forgotten organ, and they're as important to our physiology and our health as our brain, as our, our circulation, all, all these aspects that we know are so important to health. Our microbes are actually um, on par with those as well. So you say a forgotten organ, but to me, it feels a little like it's a newly discovered organ because we, we paid so little attention. I, this is a really big question, but I'm wondering if one of you can summarize 
Sure. You know, I, I think Erica and I started studying this, you know, back in 2003 when, you know, the, the gut microbiome was just a curiosity, this really interesting understudied aspect of, of human biology. And then over the past, you know, 15 years or so, the, the field has really exploded. And it first started with turning the DNA sequencing technology that was used to sequence the human genome towards our gut microbes and really getting a sense of all of this novel DNA that, that Andy mentioned that's associated with our bodies that really we hadn't ever studied before. And, and that sequencing really laid the foundation for many labs to start exploring in greater detail the role that these microbes play in our biology. And uh, what ensued is just this incredible explosion in understanding and insight, realizing that these microbes are not only very different between each one of us, so a major factor of individuality, but that these microbes are integrated into virtually all aspects of our biology. And yet they're impacted by things like diet, medications like antibiotics. So that means in day-to-day -day activities, you are changing this really fundamental portion of your biology and those changes can go on and cascade and influence things like your metabolism and immune function and even moods and behavior so um, you know i think it, it's been this really incredible explosion of understanding that's leading to a biomedical revolution so one of the things you said is that as we've learned how to sequence DNA, uh, we've discovered all sorts of new things about our microbiome, including that it needs to be diverse. I mean, I remember in the early part of my medical school training, we thought of E. coli <laughs> and we didn't think, you know, E. bifidobacteria, but now it's like there's so much diversity. Why is diversity so important when we talk about um, the gut microbiome? You know, it's, it's not really clear why diversity is important, but what we do understand is that healthier people tend to have a more diverse microbiome. And there are many possible reasons for why this is the case. If you, you know, imagine your gut as sort of like an, an ecosystem, and we know from just the study of ecology that diverse ecosystems are more resilient to insults or things that could affect them. And so in many ways, it's possible that having a more diverse gut microbiome makes it more resilient for things that happen like when you get a diarrheal sickness or you have to take antibiotics, that these more diverse ecosystems within our gut can rebound uh, much, much easier and, and much better. Andy, you've been talking for a while about ways in which, from an integrative medicine perspective, one can support gut diversity. Can, can you talk a little bit about that? Well, before I talk about that, I'd like to say I'm, I'm fascinated by the growing body of evidence that suggests that the nature of the individual microbiome determines our interactions with the environment, probably plays a big role in allergy and autoimmunity, and increasingly uh, a role in mental and emotional health. I think that's a fascinating frontier area. It seems to me the main ways we can support the microbiome are first not to take antibiotics unless they're absolutely necessary. Uh, they wreak havoc with the gut microbiome. And my gut estimate is, at least until recently, that antibiotics are really necessary in maybe 10% of the instances in which they're used. 
So I think that's one area to be very cautious about. Another, obviously, is the food we eat. It's clear that refined, processed, and manufactured food promotes a very different population of microorganisms in the gut than whole natural food. Uh, it's very important to eat enough of the prebiotics that feed the organisms that are desirable. I am a great fan of eating uh, fermented foods that have living organisms in them. I think uh, the Sundenbarks are as well. Uh, so that's another thing. And then an area of great question is whether there's any value in taking probiotic supplements. Yeah, there's kind of two ways to think about prebiotics. Um, one is in purified supplement form, and the other way is to think about them naturally occurring in foods. Prebiotics are basically just the components of foods that feed our colonic bacteria. And it's largely um, composed of complex carbohydrates, uh, commonly referred to as dietary fiber. There are you know, fiber supplements, highly purified forms of these compounds that are known as prebiotics that you can take, things like inulin or even, you know, pectin. Um, some people have heard of these, you know, associated with different foods that we eat. But of course, the best way to get a wide variety of prebiotics that really supports a diverse ecosystem in your gut is just to eat a wide variety of plant-based foods, legumes, whole grains, um, the whole foods that Andy is talking about, I think, are really a, a great way to to feed the gut microbiota with prebiotics. And you know, I think, I think in general, microbiome scientists would really agree that this is a, a part of our diet that has, um, through ultra processed agra business uh, formulations of foods, have um, we've created a food chain that is largely devoid of this prebiotic or dietary fiber that feeds our gut microbiota. And so we, we actually recently performed a, a study at Stanford with Christopher Gardner, who does these dietary interventions, comparing the effects of high fiber or high prebiotic foods with fermented foods. And so we had a group of individuals consume um, large amounts of legumes, whole grains, vegetables, another group that consumed um, large amounts of things like kefir and kimchi, yogurt. And um, over the course of this study, we our immune system is overactive and, and perhaps inflamed. And so we're looking for interventions that not only increase diversity of the microbiota, but decrease inflammation in the immune system. And um, one of the really amazing parts of this study, I think, is the incredible impact that fermented foods had on the, the gut microbiota and on inflammation. We saw a gut microbiota diversity increase, which is uh, against all the trends in the industrialized world where we have this decreasing diversity of the ecosystem that we think is really coupled to a lot of our common and serious diseases. So the fermented foods seem to counter that. And at the same time, inflammation seemed to plummet. So um, it really suggested the benefits of fermented foods. Andy and I just read a paper that looked at different population rates of coronavirus in different countries. And it was suggested that one of the reasons why the rates might be low in South Korea and in Germany, the death rates might be low, was kimchi in South Korea and sauerkraut in Germany. So this fermented food connection could be incredibly important. And I, I think it's going to be important, you know, even beyond this pandemic, when you think of the habits that people are adopting now. I mean, the industrialized world already was a little overboard and as 
when it comes to things like sanitation, everybody's always sanitizing everything, bleach sprays and hand sanitizer everywhere. And you can see that that's only going to increase as we get through this pandemic. And the great thing about fermented foods is it's a very safe and effective way to still expose yourself to microorganisms, to bacteria, but in a way that's very safe and we think um, very healthful as well. I have to mention a way that may be seen as less safe, but it's one that I indulge in. I've always lived with dogs and uh, one of my dogs likes to kiss me. And uh, I read a study showing that if you exchange saliva with a dog, I won't go into how that happens, but it does, (laughs) that this does very good things for your gut microbiome. So um, that's my little contribution to the uh, hygiene hypothesis. Yeah. You know, I, I think... call that pet kisses and <laughs> lots of pet kisses. <laughs> but there are other unusual ways that maybe are worth bringing up as well. You know, I, I have a focus in my practice on women's health, and we know that vaginal birth um, is associated with a more diverse microbiome than cesarean section and a different microbiome, depending on whether you come through the birth canal or whether you come out through the skin via a surgical incision. Uh, another thing that can make a difference is breastfeeding, which is in some ways going back to that prebiotic uh, set of foods. It turns out breast milk has has a lot of prebiotic in it for the baby's developing microbiome. Yeah, I mean, the the other fascinating thing about breast milk is, you know, not only does it contain a bunch of this prebiotic, which um, is called human milk oligosaccharides. These are a complex carbohydrate that for for many years, it was really unknown the function of because it was clear that the baby itself couldn't digest these human milk oligosaccharides. But when we studied it more carefully, it appears that these HMOs are actually digested by the gut bacteria. So this is a component of of breast milk that is specifically for feeding the baby's growing microbiome. The other interesting thing about breast milk is it also appears to contain uh, bacteria as well, some of which uh, look are very similar to the gut bacteria that the mother houses herself. And so breast milk appears to be sort of the the first both prebiotic supplemented and probiotic supplemented food. It's the ultimate high fiber, high fermented food diet for an infant. Any other things that are maybe outside of the food category? There have been articles about diet soda, but what else can we do to have a healthy, diverse microbiome? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that um, the this concept of staying away from the highly processed foods is very important. You mentioned the artificial sweeteners. We know that those have really detrimental impact on the gut microbiota, can potentiate metabolic syndrome. Um, we also know emulsifiers, a very common component of processed food for keeping it shelf stable. These emulsifiers can actually lead to erosion of the mucus barrier in the gut. And this mucus barrier is absolutely essential to maintaining harmony between the lining of our gut and our gut microbes. If you don't have this nice barrier in between host tissue and microbes, you end up with inflammation. This can lead to things like um, inflammatory bowel disease. So there's... And- Would that include such things as carrageenan? Yeah, exactly. So the, you know, the components that have been studied so far, I think are just scratching the surface. And I think that there are a lot of um, substances out there like carrageenan and others that are 
um, have, you know, charged moieties on them that, that are able to disrupt some of these complex structures. Like how about the gums, the various gums that are used? Yeah. So th those are, uh, you know, they haven't been probably studied enough. And um, there's some evidence that actually the microbiota can actually use some of these gums as a fiber source. So actually it results in fermentation, which is beneficial. So there's probably, and, and carrageenan actually can be fermented by the gut microbiota too. So there's there's probably two sides to this. It depends on what microbes you have in your gut, whether it goes towards feeding the microbes or goes towards disrupting the barrier. But there definitely are types of emulsifiers that the bacteria cannot ferment that are just solely, it appears to be harmful to our gut lining. Body of Wonder is produced by the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine at the University of Arizona. Internationally recognized for innovative health and wellness programs, evidence-based research, and clinical standards. During this unprecedented time managing the physical and emotional challenges of the coronavirus, the Andrew Weil Center is here to support you. The center offers listeners a wide range of free resources to live and maintain a healthy lifestyle, including online learning, meditations, and short videos. To find out more, go to azcim.org slash podcast. That's azcim.org slash podcast. All right, let's get to this question of antibiotics and should you take a probiotic? For many years, that was the recommendation of integrative medicine physicians, naturopathic doctors, others. And yet some recent studies have suggested that a probiotic may actually interfere with reestablishing the diversity um, of the gut microbiome over time. So where are you with that now? <laughs> You know, these studies have been absolutely beautiful and, and really illuminating, I think, to some of the mechanisms that we just didn't understand were associated with probiotics. I would say that, you know, the, the thing that these recent studies have shown pretty clearly, and, and one thing that's important to note is that in all of these studies, you know, there's a huge variety of probiotics out there. And in any one of these studies, it's so expensive and so detailed uh, it's impossible for them to study a, a wide panel of probiotics. So we have to re remember that with most of these findings, it's using one prototype probiotic, you know, either group of organisms or one specific probiotic. And it's um, we have to be careful in extrapolating that to the entire field. But what what these these studies have been really beautiful, done by really great research groups, and they they clearly established that, for instance, regrowth of the microbiota in the mucosa to protect kind of that mucosal lining is delayed if you take a certain probiotic after antibiotic treatment. Now, the, the one thing that's difficult to reconcile is that there is quite a bit of data out there showing that probiotics can have a positive impact, for instance, on um, viral diarrheas, sometimes um, effects on um, you know, certain susceptibility to um, viral infections and things like that. And so the difficult part to reconcile is the impact of probiotics on those endpoints that are so important for people's health versus what's happening to this community inside of you that really is you know not able to be surveyed by the individual the delayed growth of 
the microbiota, for instance, after antibiotics may not be such a bad thing if these probiotics are serving as placeholders and allowing the microbiota to regrow in a way that ultimately forms a very stable, robust community. So that rate of regrowth, we have to be careful in interpreting that with respect to human health. And I really go back to these studies that have, you know, in, in many different situations shown positive impacts of probiotics on, on human health. And I think there's, you know, we need to do more studies to understand the mechanisms. Andy, one of our listeners, Kate, called in with a question about probiotics. We get this question a lot, and she really wants to hear your thoughts about taking a probiotic. Hi, my name is Kate. I would love Dr. Weil's opinion on probiotics. He briefly touched on it today. I listened to episode five, and um, I'm just curious as to how he feels the benefits of them and if there are any cons. Thank you very much. Take care. Do you recommend them? And, you know, how do you choose? And I recommend probiotic supplements, and I'm careful about which ones I recommend to people on antibiotic therapy for the duration of the antibiotic therapy. I recommend them to people traveling in parts of the world where traveler's diarrhea is likely. And I recommend them to some people with chronic GI conditions, inflammatory bowel disease, for example. But other, otherwise, I generally do not recommend or myself take probiotic supplements. I always recommend that people eat fermented foods and that they learn how to make them themselves. Uh, they're inexpensive, delicious. Uh, one concern about a lot of them is they're very high in salt, and there are ways to get around that and reduce them, um, the salt content. But I, I think that's there's no question about that. One resource that our listeners might want to look at is called usprobioticguide.com. Uh, usprobioticguide.com. That's a website that's updated every year with the research that shows which probiotics have been studied in which conditions. And it does help you make a more thoughtful decision if you're choosing one for your child or uh, for an adult who has um, one of the conditions that Andy mentioned. So I've been following some very new research that's coming out of uh, MIT from the lab of Robert Langer, uh, looking at ways of microencapsulating probiotics that enable them to survive passage through the stomach through stomach acid and effectively colonize the gut. And this is also being looked at as a way of delivering probiotics to the skin to increase wound healing. And uh, I wonder if the Sonnenbergs have any comments about that. It looks promising to me. I think that the um, one of the beautiful things that's happened over the past few years is we see a lot of these technologies like nanotechnologies, synthetic biology, being um, married to a lot of the concepts from the microbiota. And I think that this is going to usher in a, a new era of exacting change on, on human biology. I think the skin microbiome is one of the big uh, frontiers, a huge potential there. And uh, I, I think a lot of brand new companies with really exciting ideas. You know, one thing I would like to add that you know, listeners might not be aware of the, of the difference between getting probiotics via supplement versus fermented foods is, you know, the supplements are just those organisms. Fermented foods contains both the organisms used to ferment the food, but also the 
chemical byproducts of that fermentation. And there is some evidence that some of those chemical byproducts may actually be performing beneficial functions. And that's actually one of the things that our lab is starting to look into is just the chemicals created by the microbes in the fermented foods, um, what exactly those things are doing both to the microbiome and to the uh, human immune system. And by those chemicals, you're talking about things like butyrate and acetate. Exactly. Lactic acid, all these, these byproducts of fermentation. And beyond those there are these major fermentation end products that, that um, you were mentioning. Uh, one of the important things to recognize about microbes in general, whether it's them performing fermentation in foods or, or living within our gut, is that they are producing a vast array of really interesting metabolites, you know, little chemicals that, um, you know, get produced. They, um, if they're in our gut, get absorbed into our bloodstream and then circulate through our bodies. And some of these are mimics of neurotransmitters. Some of them bind to uh, receptors in our cells and trigger signaling pathways. So there's really a complex interplay between uh, just a, a huge array of chemicals that microbes produce and proteins in our body. All right. I got to ask, is there a best fermented food, kefir, yogurt, sauerkraut? I just started making kombucha because I'm home all the time. Right. <laughs> um, or, is it, or is it diversity what you want in your fermented foods too? <laughs> I, I think that's unclear at this point, you know, whether diversity or just total amount is what's important. You know, we, we're fermenting a lot of stuff because we're also home. And so we've made sauerkraut, kimchi, kombucha. We're always making yogurt and kefir. And we like to eat a variety of, of fermented foods, but it'll be interesting to see down the road, you know, after some more research, how how different these different fermented foods are and you know are there good matches based on your particular microbiota that a fermented food is well suited for um, but all these questions we don't have answers to yet let me mention two that i've been making that are a little unusual one is tempeh uh, i've become a regular tempeh maker it's a you know a wonderful protein source and the process of making it is fun and the other which is much less well known here is natto uh, this is the slimy product that very few Westerners like. I, I like it. And that's unusual that it doesn't use salt in the fermentation. Why am I not surprised that you like natto? <laughs> <laughs> Andy loves all things Japan, even slimy things. <laughs> it's a unique experience trying natto. On a certain end of the continuum, we haven't talked about one of the other ways to increase diversity, and uh, that's fecal microbial transplants. Uh, where are we with that now? Uh, is it coming to prime time? Should people be doing it themselves? Yeah. This is um, one of the really difficult areas in our field. I think five, seven years ago now, there was this really famous study that um, showed that fecal transplants were just incredibly successful in curing C. difficile colitis. So just to, to bring everybody up to speed, fecal transplants are exactly what they sound like. It's, it's taking fecal matter from a healthy donor and putting it into somebody who's diseased. And you can either put it in through a nasogastric tube or rectally um, through, a, through a tube. And applying this healthy microbiota in the case of C. difficile colitis um, really had kind of a miracle cure qualities. It, it took the standard of care of 25% cure rate, which was antibiotics at the time, 
to over 90% cure rate for this really dreadful disease that kills about 15,000 people in the United States every year. So really incredible results. And that launched an era of trying to use fecal transplants to cure all sorts of diseases that had been associated with the gut microbiota, ranging from uh, inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome, all the way through um, some of the uh, other inflammatory con conditions like asthma, um, allergies, things like that. And what we see is that nothing else is quite as successful or even close to as successful as the application of fecal transplants for C. difficile colitis. So for instance, in the case of inflammatory bowel disease, um, there appears to be cures that do happen, um, but it requires repeated administration and it's quite dependent upon the donor that you're using for a given circumstance. And so um, it's a much more confined, narrow uh, spectrum of cases that it's successful for. But it gets back to this big question of what is the path forward, both from the standpoint of therapeutics, but also from the standpoint of people who just want to increase gut diversity and maybe help out um, a gut that's giving them problems. I think, you know, we've talked about probiotics. I think one of the next big parts of this story will be probiotics 2.0, where we're actually applying healthy microbes derived from the gut microbiota rather than derived from fermented foods that actually take up residence and reconstitute our gut microbiota, reconstitute functions and interactions in this complex ecosystem to lend stability, help us digest food and, and provide other beneficial functions. So that is, there's a, a bunch of therapeutics companies focused on these microbial therapeutics, kind of for FMTs 2.0, the fecal microbiota transplants 2.0. Um, and these are, are coming along with a variety of, of products, but still the trials are, are playing out. We don't know quite how that that's gonna gonna end. So, how close are we to treating the microbiome, either uh, with food or a fecal microbial transplant, and addressing really hard issues like obesity or depression, uh, anxiety, um, Parkinson's, multiple sclerosis, things that we have a very hard time? Are, are we getting closer, or is it still decades away? You know, I, I think one of the really exciting parts of our field right now is the coupling of um, artificial intelligence and machine learning to start to um, come to some of the, the solutions. And there's a good example of this in our field where um, basically the premises collect a bunch of data um, longitudinally in, in different individuals and look at how the microbiome changes coupled to either diet or, or other interventions, um, how that couples to a specific outcome. In this case, the investigators looked at um, blood glucose levels. So it's a way to try to keep blood glucose levels low with the idea that those are coupled to, to metabolic disease. And so the, these sorts of investigations have been really successful in customizing foods for an individual to keep blood glucose low. And it came from kind of the initial simple observation that a banana in some individuals can lead to a really profound blood glucose spike, where in other individuals, it can lead to no change at all, very kind of flat response in blood glucose and trying to understand how the microbiome plays into this. And so these investigators have used machine learning to basically look at an individual's microbiome and then make a prediction as to whether you will spike 
uh, your blood glucose levels will spike if you eat a banana or if you eat other things. So this is a, a demonstration of how we can use big data and um, algorithms to try to interpret a lot of the complexity and come to recommendations that may help individuals achieve not just lower blood glucose, but a variety of, of beneficial health effects. I'd like to hear your comments on the what I see is a, a very exciting frontier, and that is the relationship between the, the gut microbiota and mental health. Yeah, it is a fascinating idea to think that, you know, the bacteria that are living in your gut are somehow influencing, you know, different things happening in your brain and, and, and things like mental illness. I mean, there's been a lot of associations between the gut microbiome and things like autism. And there's always been sort of a connection between um, that, between autism and GI issues as well. I think part of the, why the research isn't moving as fast on that as many people would hope is that when you think of the complexity of having trillions of microbes living within your gut, all the different chemicals they're producing, and then the complexity of our brain and trying to understand how these two highly complex systems interact, I think we will need to do a lot more like what Justin was saying, kind of artificial intelligence, machine learning to try to get to the important connections early on so that we can focus our research on those areas to better understand how exactly our gut microbes are communicating with our brain. Um, but the, it's clear that there's a connection there. There are many anecdotal studies out there talking about people that have been able to treat a lot of um, mood disorders just through changing diets or, or various aspects of their life that we know influence the microbiota. But there is no, um, unfortunately, like, you know, detailed, like, stepwise manner to, um, to get there. Uh, at this point, it's all very just hand-wavy and anecdotal. You know, the, the one thing that I would say is we know we're, I think, coming to understand that there's a, this really uh, intimate connection between inflammation and our nervous system. And we know that these gut microbes can directly influence our inflammatory state. And there's a lot of data that suggests that over the course of industrialization and a lot of the factors that we've been talking about have gradually, you know, not only deteriorated our gut microbiota, but caused our inflammatory state to rise, driving a lot of inflammatory conditions. Now, those are commonly thought of as things like um, arthritis and asthma, um, but we know that their, you know, depression is linked to inflammation as well. And so there, you know, this is a, a complex loop, but it, like, it likely connects back to a lot of the factors that we've been talking about and just erosion of the healthy gut microbiota in general. When you talk about two different human beings having polar opposite reactions to eating a banana, uh, you're talking about a field that's coming called uh, precision medicine. It absolutely is consistent with one of the principles of integrative medicine, which is that we need to individualize our recommendations. As you think about precision medicine, what role do you think the microbiome will play in that? I mean, I think it's going to be absolutely central. I mean, and I think that there are three main reasons for that. I think the, the first is that we know that the microbiota is very different between each one of us. And so this, you know, highly individualized aspect of our biology is compatible with all the, the tenets of precision medicine. I think 
the fact that the gut microbiota is connected to so much of our biology. We know if we perturb the microbiota, we can send cascades into the distal reaches of our body through these chemical messengers that our, our microbes are, are secreting. And the, the third part of this is that our, our gut microbiota is malleable. Um, we know that we're born with the genome that we can't change. Um, you know, this is starting to change a little bit with, with the gene editing technology that's coming along, but still incredibly um, new technology that, that has a long way to go. I think our gut microbiota, we can change day to day based on what we eat and potentially some of this reprogramming using defined cocktails of microbes that we've been talking about. And so it's those three principles together that I think really lend to um, incorporating the gut microbiota into precision health and, and into clinical medicine. And I think there, you know, it's not going to be too far away when you go into a clinic and, and you have a, a test to see what's going on with your gut microbiota. And even if you're suff suffering from, you know, a respiratory illness or suffering from depression, it may be a microbiota targeted therapeutic that actually results in a cascade of signals being sent to correct that. Is this a new uh, way of thinking? Because it seems to me I've heard many people say over the past few years that your gut microbiota is determined at birth and that there are not very many ways you can influence it. Yeah. So, so I think that one of the things that has been surprising to a lot of people in the field, including us, is how stable the gut microbiota is, even over dietary perturbations. Um, we see antibiotics definitely perturb the microbiota in a major way, but then it ends up coming back to look somewhat, it's never identical to what it was before, but, but similar. And so there are these um, many species in your gut appear to entrench uh, in in your gut and and live there for for decades, be very stable stable members of the microbiota. But what we're finding is that there are ways to reprogram the gut ah. microbiota, and this gets back to some of the synthetic biology techniques. And it's it's easier than CRISPRing your your genome, and it's a way of swapping out for instance, a bad member of your microbiota for a good member and, and influencing that way. So I, I think you're right, Andy, that the gut microbiota is actually much more stable than we originally anticipated it being with this complex community of microbes and the luminal flow that we know happens every day, but it is still malleable and it's something that we can reshape. So as we move towards closing, uh, one, uh, tell us what you're most excited about that your lab is currently working on. I think I'm most excited about the um, human dietary intervention trials that we've been doing. You know, we're talking about ways of changing a person's microbiome to improve health. And we've, you know, our field has studied that a lot in animal models. And I feel like we're getting really good at manipulating a mouse microbiota, but we want to, what we really want to understand are what are the safe components of foods, things that we could, you know, people can change right away how can those things influence our microbiome? And so be it like a fermented food intervention, a probiotic intervention or prebiotic intervention, how do these different types of interventions influence people's microbiota? How much of that is individualized versus cohort-wide effects that we see? And how do these interventions, um, which trickle down to changes in the person's microbiome, influence important things like the immune status of the host. How does it predispose them to perhaps um, potentially lowering inf inflammation that we think could have beneficial effects for these 
non-communicable chronic diseases that are becoming so prevalent in Western societies. And, you know, I, I think that kind of married to this, related to it, is a really interesting set of projects in our lab related to understanding the extinctions that have happened in the industrialized gut. Um, we know that as societies all over the planet have industrialized um, microbes that are fundamental to human biology have gone missing and the functions associated with those microbes have gone missing. And so now we're studying uh, traditional populations of humans, hunter-gatherers, for instance, and trying to understand uh, in different parts of the planet, what are the microbes that are shared by all of these traditional populations? Those are indicators of microbes that traveled around the planet with humans as we migrated and covered the globe and then have been lost in the evolutionary blink of an eye could understanding those, studying them, and then ultimately potentially bringing them back, rewilding the industrialized microbiota represent a way to recover important loss functions and restore uh, um, healthier gut microbiome. I want to say how much we appreciate Erica and Justin, uh, your time, your expertise, your wisdom. Thank you so much for being on Body of Wonder and sharing your knowledge with our listeners. And we look forward to our next conversation with you. Thanks very much. Yeah, it's been thanks. wonderful. Listeners, this is Dr. Victoria Mazes. We would love for you to send us your questions for Andy, myself, or for our guests. You can call us and leave a voicemail by dialing 520-621-3950. Again, 520-621-3950. Or you can submit a question by going to our website, azcim.org slash podcast. Again, azcim.org slash podcast. We will review your questions and try to answer as many as possible on our programs. Learn more about topics featured on the Body of Wonder podcast and how to apply them to your everyday health with My Wellness Coach, a free mobile app from the Andrew Weil Center for Integrative Medicine. Download today at mywellnesscoach.arizona.edu. That's mywellnesscoach.arizona.edu.